Today, we're going to look at how negatives can actually equal positives. So we're going to start with the unfortunate subject of math. And then we're going to move to math. Yes. Yeah. Then we're going to move on to grains of wheat and then giant magnets. All right? So here we go. Let's pray. Send us your spirit, O God, as we meditate on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Prepare our minds to hear your word. Move in our hearts to accept the things that we hear and purify our wills to obey you in joy and in faith. We pray this through Christ our Savior. Amen. Amen. So, people probably know this by now, but I'm what you might call math-challenged. So math was like the only thing that terrified me when I, I was a student, and it still terrorizes me today as the tutor of a fourth-grade boy at Walnut, right? And so every Tuesday at 2.45, and this is, this is really true, I actually pray that I will be smarter in math than a fourth grader, all right? <laughs> so math even appearing in a sermon is like almost unthinkable. But when I looked at today's story, um, I actually saw this mathematical rule that I felt needed to be explored a little bit. It was funny. So on Tuesday, um, <laughs> here, Christine's here. Um, Steve isn't, so I, I could have pulled this off if both were gone on the same day. I wouldn't have had to admit this, but... <laughs> I had these double multiplication problems and it had these fancy instructions and I looked at the sheet of paper and I was like, I have no idea what this means like. <laughs> no clue. And I asked the, the teacher and I'm like, you know, can I just do this the way that I know it? Because I only know it one way. Um, and I found out that there's multiple ways today that you can do this kind of stuff. And so I learned that, Michael, you can help me out here, the turtle head method. Okay, Michael doesn't know that one. Anybody know the turtle head method? Okay, how about the box technique? Okay, so a few people know the box technique. So I learned the box technique last Tuesday, all right? Um, so here we go. Michael's going to get this. We'll see how everybody else does. Okay, so what I'm told is that 6th and 7th graders all know this. So like 5 minus minus 3. Michael, do you know it? Yeah, 8. Does everybody know that? Is that just like, is this the most... So who admitted if you didn't know it, just like a couple people, Dale didn't know it? Okay, and Dale has a master's degree, all right? Sharon, thank you. All right. Yeah. Yeah. All right, we're in serious trouble. All right. Yeah, Michael. You could, if you want to do this, <laughs> I'll sit with your mom. Seriously, like, I get it. <laughs> so this is what I learned, right? Now, I was actually reading about this. Um, most 6th and 7th grade students know the answer to this problem. But see, the thing is, I'm not sure. Math was different. That's all I can say. Michael, math was different. There was no box technique, and there was no turtle head method, like when most of us were, <laughs> whatever the turtle head method is, I don't even know. <laughs> this one maybe but not other stuff please peanut gallery over there oh, man. this is a tough crowd today alright so now here's the math this the whole point of doing this was to get to the mathematical rule alright I haven't even stated what the rule is yet the rule is two negatives equal a positive alright good so this is like so easily memorized, so easy to apply, but actually I did some reading on this for fun because 
the way my mind works, for fun. Because I was interested in it because I thought it fit with the scripture today. And so some teachers actually say that this rule, they call it catchy nonsense. All right? And what they say is that while most people can actually memorize it, it's really easy to, to memorize, te- most teachers say that it's really almost always applied incorrectly. Right? So it's actually difficult to apply. That was an easy one. So look, I gave you an easy one, all right? If I had done a harder one, maybe you wouldn't have gotten it. Um, well, Michael would have. But Dale and I still would have been in trouble. <laughs> all right, so here's some poor applications of the rule, right? Um, two negatives equal a positive. Like, if a person is mean and they're moody, it does not mean they're going to be likable. <laughs> like, mean and moody basically means, like, that is a person we do not want to hang out with. All right, so how about this one? Like, Jolene, if I owe you $10, a minus 10, and I owe Shay uh, $30, a minus 30, um, I cannot claim that two negatives equal a positive, <laughs> and that really they owe me 40 bucks. <laughs> um, because using that kind of logic would actually mean that not only will I be out 40 bucks, but I'll also lose two friends, right? <laughs> um, so we just know that it, this doesn't always work. Um, so I showed you a couple examples of uh, what some teachers, that's why they call it ke- kind of catchy nonsense, because most of the time it's not true. Um, but what about in God's math, right? Can two negatives ever equal a positive? And so today I'll argue yes. Uh, but the important disclaimer with this is that this is a fun way to get into a text that's challenging, right? Um, it's not a bit biblical principle that covers all of our areas of our lives. That's what I was trying to show with those, those examples where it doesn't work. Um, so we don't want to apply this to life's difficult stuff and tragedies and so forth. Like We just need to make sure we understand that that is not what we're going to say. But it is a fun way to get into this. And so we're going to see if you can find this rule at work. You can decide for yourself if the rule is uh, catchy nonsense or if it's what God is actually using to draw all human beings to himself. So listen to the text and you can decide for yourself. John 12, 20 to 33. Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it. Those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I've glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, The voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. The word of the Lord. And so here's the context of what's going on. Just one verse prior to this, our starting point, the Pharisees are actually complaining. This is amazing. They're complaining that the whole world is going after and following and seeking Jesus out. And for good reason. Jesus had just raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. 
So there's no surprise that in this section of the story we see people like seeking Jesus out. These Greeks, they want to meet Jesus. They want to perhaps see Jesus perform a miracle. Maybe they want to see Jesus raise another Lazarus from the dead. They, Lazarus from the dead, they want to see this with their own eyes. And so they kind of seek him out. They want to see him. And Jesus kind of, I think this is kind of a showstopper. Jesus basically says something like, if you want to see me, uh, you need to see me die and rise and ascend. And so Jesus died. Like that is not, think of the context here. That is not the show that these people came to see. They wanted to see Jesus do something really cool, not die. And so Jesus then launches into this final public sermon about life and death, about seeds and plants, about negatives becoming positives. And that is because he says that the hour has come to complete the work that the Father had given. So to describe this work, this purpose, Jesus uses a grain of wheat that must die and be put into the ground in order to bear fruit. Now, a grain of wheat is so small, I didn't bring it. I just brought with me one bean, whole bean seed. It's this big. It's pretty small. Um, and I brought this with me because to show you that, you know, if I keep this seed here in my hands, so I've had this seed now for probably two years, right? And so I have a whole bunch of seeds. And so I just plant them each year as many as I need. I save the rest for later. Um, this seed will never fulfill its purpose if it remains in my hand or my drawer that I got it out of my kitchen, you know, early this morning. Um, it can't do anything. But in two to three weeks after the last frost, I'll plant this seed. Um, and this little tiny seed will grow to about a seven to eight foot vine. And it will probably yield somewhere between three and four pounds of perfect green beans. Just this, this one little seed, Right? the seed never enters the ground. It never fulfills its purpose. This is what Jesus is saying. What looks in this story like the grain of wheat's demise is in fact its harvest. A negative becomes a positive. We start to see it, I hope, at this point. Jesus says that it's, uh, this is what his death is going to be like. Jesus' impending death, like the grain of wheat, ultimately bears fruit, ultimately only in the, in the resurrection, in the ascension, and what on the surface looks like Jesus' defeat, will in fact be this supreme display of God's incredible love for the world. It's actually going to serve as the primary image for what perfect love looks like. Sacrifice and giving everything for others. And so this is the moment the whole gospel story has been kind of moving toward, and this moment Jesus said has now arrived. The hour has come. And so we just note that like, to take on flesh in the incarnation also means that Jesus takes on mortality. And so I find the passage, when I read it again, I was just like kind of emotionally drained. It's one of Jesus' most human moments. He says, my soul is troubled. This is his language. This is kind of John's like, Gethsemane, right? This is, a, this is a tough, difficult passage. How could it not be troubled? That's the question I ask myself. I'm like, I, this makes perfect sense to me. He's essentially knows he's it's like he, what it would feel like to live under a death sentence. You know, Roman crucifixions were state-sponsored terrorism. They're jamming crosses into the ground like farmers use scarecrows to frighten people and nations. Like I can't even imagine what this must have been like. For Jesus. So and it made me think, you know, recently Katie and I went up to see my parents. My dad had a little heart procedure a few weeks ago. 
Um, and while we were up there talking to him and hanging out in the living room, my dad said, you know, I've got to tell you something about your uncle. His brother, Jerry, had been di- has been diagnosed just recently with this rare disease called CBD, cardiobasal degeneration. Anybody know what that is? Okay, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not that common from what I can hear. I didn't have any idea what it was. But what I learned is that apparently a lot of doctors don't know what it is either, right? And so that's why my dad told me that when his brother called him, he said, you know, your uncle kind of received this like a death sentence because there's no cure for it. And so, of course, you know, I've been praying for my uncle that Jesus accompanies him on this difficult journey, walks with him through it all and sees him, sees him through. But as I was thinking about it in relation to this passage, I believe with everything in my being, that although I do not understand what my uncle is going through, I don't understand it. Maybe the doctors don't understand it. But when I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, Jesus does understand this. Jesus has been there. He's already walked this path before us. And look at what this hour, this moment does for Jesus. What it typically does to us is it paralyzes us in fear. With Jesus, it actually focuses his attention like a laser on this one thing. Like, I'm, you know, I'm not going to lie. I'd be asking God for a different hour. I don't know about you. You know, can we roll the dice again and, like, see if we get lucky with, with something different? Uh, maybe a different moment, a different purpose, a different hour. Jesus' soul is troubled, but look what he does. He doesn't refuse to ask God to save him from the hour because if this is why he's so focused. He says he's so aware that it was for this hour that Jesus had come in the first place. And though, can you imagine? I remember, we have to remember the context. The Greeks who come looking, they want to see Jesus. Can you imagine the looks on these guys' faces when Jesus starts talking about this stuff? They want to see Jesus put on a show. Instead, they hear this audible voice of God. They react in various responses. All of them miss the point. The voice of God wants Jesus' disciples and these Greeks to understand that God has been and always will be glorified on earth in Jesus' life and ministry and also in his death and resurrection. And so the sermon kind of moves on toward a big finish. Jesus will be lifted up onto the cross to die. He'll be buried into the earth, but these negatives equal a positive. Jesus will be lifted up much higher than the cross and the resurrection and higher still even in the ascension. Jesus will be lifted from death to life, lifted up to the very place from which he came to the right hand of God the Father. And so the text says that the violent ways of the world are going to be exposed and judged for exactly what they are, that the ruler of this world, a little reference to Satan, will be kind of deposed and Jesus will stand alone against the power of sin and death will take the judgment of the world upon himself so that we don't have to. Now, when I got to this point, I was like, I was pretty exhausted. You know, like this, this, is, this was hard. And then you get to this verse, 33. To me, one of the most hope-filled, hopeful verses in all of Scripture. And this is what it says. Here's a positive. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. We'll draw, let's just think about this after what Jesus has just said. In this passage, Jesus starts out like a grain of wheat planted in the ground. But now we actually get this glimpse of the harvest. His resurrection and ascension is being lifted up from death to life. The whole human race, every human being, reconciled 
to God. The Apostle Paul says something really similar. He wrote this in 2 Corinthians 5.19. He said, uh, In Christ God was reconciling the world unto himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Now when I look closely at this verse, what I see is all kinds of possibility. I see hope for a world that does not know Jesus yet. And so in my mind's eye, what I pictured was like the world's largest magnet. A magnet so large that it just cannot be resisted. And like a magnet is the image that came to my mind. Jesus is drawing people to himself. How will he do it? Through self-giving love and sacrifice unto death. By pouring out his life until there was nothing left to pour out. And his arms outstretched, showing the world this all-encompassing love of God. And so, friends, Jesus drawing people into himself, this is one, this is one of the To me, one of the most exciting things you can read in Scripture, and there's some mystery here, but it's a hopeful mystery that God is actively at work, already out there working in people's hearts and their lives, drawing people closer to himself. And then you look two chapters later in John's Gospel, and this is what Jesus says. This one should be familiar. He says, in my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, you may also be. That Jesus is drawing us into intimacy with God and will actually someday take us there himself. It's like the reach of Christ's work is something to marvel at. And in a world where so many are excluded for all kinds of reasons, even from the church, We look at Christ's work, and Jesus seems to be indicating that no one is going to be left without opportunities. Jesus says, I will draw all people to myself. And so what does it mean for us, for Jesus' disciples today? What I think it means is that if we really want to see Jesus for ourselves, then we have to be ready to be planted in the ground like a grain of wheat, like Jesus is talking about, who pioneered this way before us. Now, here's how wheat farming works. Anybody... I didn't know any of this stuff. The wheat farmer harrows the soil, breaks it up, and digs the shallow trench to create the seedbed. The wheat seeds are dropped into the trench, covered in the soil. They pray for some sun and rain. And here we go. Now, in Jesus' day, the farmer dropped a grain of wheat in this trench, one single grain at a time. And guess what? Wheat farmers today do the exact same thing, one grain of wheat at a time. They use a grain drill. It's this notched wheel that spins around and drops one grain at a time. Now, here's what happens. Two bushel of seed to sow one acre field. The return on two bushel for one acre is roughly 40 to 50 bushels of wheat. It's a lot of wheat. To put that into loaves of bread when you go to the store, that's about 2,500 loaves of bread per acre. So the, this is, like you can see, you know, this is, the, I think, the glory that God wants us to see. It all starts with one grain of wheat planted in the ground. And this miracle of dead seeds yielding a harvest of 2,500 loaves of bread for, per acre actually saves entire nations from famine. And so just as it takes lots of single grains of wheat dropped into the ground to feed a hungry world, I think this is what Jesus, I think this is what he's saying. It's going to take a lot of 
disciples of Jesus to feed the hungry souls of the world. I think this is where, this is where we're going with this. And so let's finish with a close look at 26. Jesus says, whoever serves me must follow me. This is where I said, uh-oh. Like, is he serious? Follow him where exactly? We don't want to follow him where he went. And I, the other question, I was like, do we have to? You know, is this really what he's asking? And I think the answer is yes and no. Jesus has accomplished something on our behalf that we rest in. Jesus has died for the sins of the world so that we don't have to. But we remember that to get food from wheat, you actually have to thresh the grain off the head. The wheat dies when it's stripped away. If the wheat clings to the head, it clings to its old ways. It never dies. It never produces a harvest. And so it's about death and resurrection, not just Jesus's, but I think he's hinting at our own, too, that dying to self and coming alive in Christ. And so the question is, what does it look like? Now, Jesus says that it's serving him and following him. This is what he says, that brings the Father's honor. All of us want to be honored. What better honor is there to seek than God's? To actually seek the honor that really matters more than anything in the world. That God honors those who serve Jesus right now. The honor we receive is to be with Jesus, to be uh, with Jesus wherever he is. And it said, it talked about eternal life, you know, and the way I understand eternal life is not just for some time in the future, it starts today. Um, And so Jesus is saying the honor that we're going to receive is to be with Christ from this day forward until uh, through eternity. And so we follow and we serve Jesus when we die to self, when we live for God, when we allow God to plant us in the soil, we become these workers of the harvest, serving alongside the work that the Spirit is already actively doing in the world. And so this is what Jesus says. He says, whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Remember, two bushels of seed, 40 to 50 bushels of wheat, 2,500 loaves of bread, And it all starts with one simple, small, little grain of wheat. It starts with one disciple of Jesus. It starts with you. It starts with me. That God uses our lives for a healthy harvest that all might come to know God's incredible love in Jesus Christ. That's when I looked at this passage. That's how I saw these negatives like Jesus' death and burial. These negatives equaling a positive in God's math. Jesus is drawing all people unto himself. Let's pray. God, your goodness toward us is hard to fathom. Your ways are mysterious, and yet we experience them ultimately as mercy and as grace and as forgiveness. God, we thank you for the gift of your word, which teaches us, which challenges us. May we follow you more closely. And in so doing, may your harvest increase. We pray this in the loving name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.